Hi, it's Tom here. So this is the bit at the beginning of the podcast where we always say thank you to everyone who has been reading and listening and donating to us. But the reason we do this every single podcast is because we really, really mean it. It's been a weird year so far in a lot of ways, but the silver lining for us has been that Spiked has been growing. We've been going from strength to strength, and that's all because of you lot, really, particularly those who generously donate to us every month. Those donations, they're what have allowed us to expand our output, to bring you more polemics and essays and podcasts. And most importantly, it's helped us to push back against this mad, illiberal, identitarian time that we find ourselves in. So once again, thank you very much to those who give. And if you don't give, but you'd like to, please do think about making a donation today. All we have to do is go to spiked-online.com, click on the big red donate button in the top right corner, and then fill in your details. So thanks so much. Have a good weekend. Watch out for those COVID marshals. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me this week we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Brexit negotiations, the latest lockdown measures and Islamophobia in the press. Yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. Brussels has threatened legal action if Britain doesn't back down. We need a legal safety net to uh, protect our country. I made it perfectly clear that we would not be withdrawing this legislation. What were they thinking? I hope they're not thinking of a UK-US trade agreement. The Brexit negotiations have flared up again this week. Prime Minister Boris Johnson threatened to walk away from the talks if a deal wasn't in place by the 15th of October. The government also announced plans to override aspects of the withdrawal agreement it ratified back in January. Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis caused outrage when he said in the Commons that the government's internal market bill would break international law in a very specific and limited way. The EU has responded by demanding an extraordinary meeting with the UK. To discuss the ramifications of these latest rows, we're joined by Bruno Waterfield, Brussels correspondent at The Times. Bruno, first of all, can you explain what the row over the internal market bill is about and what it means for the negotiations? Well, to put it really, really simply, the internal market bill clears up the ambiguity and the contradictions, the deliberate smoke and mirrors in the Northern Ireland Protocol which is the most politically charged bit of the Brexit withdrawal agreement, which is a treaty, a treaty that has been you know, signed and ratified. So it is in force because Britain is currently in the transition period, which is in that treaty and staying in the single market customs union. Now, there's a problem with the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think everyone would admit, objectively speaking, because it simultaneously says that there will be unfettered access, are the words used, between Northern Ireland and mainland Britain after the end of the transition period. And yet, at the same time, it says that the European Union's custom code will have direct effect in the territory of Northern Ireland, which logically, given that the rest of Britain won't be, that logically creates some fetters to access. So that part of the protocol is in direct contradiction with itself. There is also a clause, uh, clause 10, which means that EU state aid rules, that's rules about subsidies and competition, would apply in the territory of Northern Ireland, and that the British government 
should notify, that is, ask the European Commission for permission if it wants to subsidise any businesses if that affects trade between Northern Ireland and uh, the rest of the island of Ireland. The government is worried, again, with some cause, according to many state aid lawyers, a whole branch of law, it seems, that that will tie their hands. It could get in the way of the revolutionising of British subsidy policy that looks likely to happen in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and also because of a changing nature of politics in Britain. So for those reasons, and because time is running out, there's a, a process called the Joint Committee, which is supposed to be sorting all this out, but time is running out. Britain doesn't seem to be getting anywhere. This is an area where the EU has leverage, as they refer to it here, over Britain, I that you can just say no. And given the nature of the talks at the moment being rather confrontational, it wasn't going anywhere. And that's rationale for the government introducing the internal market bill, because if the negotiations go nowhere over the next three months, there would be a very real prospect of there being a really big problem territorially between Northern Ireland and mainland Britain. So the government has a responsibility to act in that scenario. And the internal market bill doesn't say that the Secretary of State shall do things to override the withdrawal treaty. It says may in the event that it is needed. The government would argue it's being very, very sensible and it's doing its job, which is to look after the territorial integrity of the country. Just on on that point, I mean, this has been presented as a blow to the rule of law. People have likened it to China breaking its international commitments over Hong Kong. Some are saying Britain is a rogue state for the way it's behaving. I mean, is that level of outrage justified in, in your view? There is a sort of idea abroad on which the European Union uh, is founded and supporters of the European Union have it as their most venerated idea that treaty law, international treaties are the highest form of law and the EU is built on that. Now, you could say, well, look at the EU. The EU spends half its time tearing itself apart because one part of the EU isn't obeying rules on the Eurozone and the other half want them strictly enforced. The EU itself is always being accused of violating refugee conventions. For example, in terms of trade, the EU still refuses to allow imports of hormone beef, for example, even though WTO has said that the ban is, isn't founded on science and is effectively illegal in trade terms. So whilst there is this group of people, particularly that group of people who used to be known as Remainers, while they see international treaties as the highest form of law, in fact, the sort of organisation that they support the EU is prepared to depart from international law when it suits its interests. And I think the idea for most people that a government would put the highest law, would put a deal it's done with other powers, with foreign powers, before the interests of its own people, before the interests of its own territory, I don't think most people would buy that. So essentially, the idea of international treaties being sacred, of being the highest form of law, is a piety and a lot of the the faux outrage, the outrage after the government's announcement really is sort of pearl clutching that we've seen a lot of over the last few years. Tom. So Bruno, you touched there on one of the key sticking points at this point in the negotiations around the issue of state aid. And you talked a little bit about why that's so important to the UK side, wanting to revolutionise subsidy policy, etc. But why is it so important? Why is it such a sticking point for the EU? Why are they so concerned about Britain kind of going its own way on state aid policy? The EU has an argument here. Britain is very, very close. It's big. 
the British economy is bigger than the combined weight of 18 of the EU's 27 countries. It's one of the biggest economies in the EU. So having that right on your doorstep and having a government that's announced it wants to have a radical departure and Dominic Cummings has talked about high-tech investments and all that kind of stuff, it does it does rattle them. They're worried about having to compete with Britain, which would be much more nimble-fitted because it'd be able to take decisions quickly without notifying Brussels, for example. They're worried about the prospect of that competition. And again, it's dressed up quite often in a load of fretting that Britain would race to the bottom in terms of tearing up labour standards or, or, or environmental standards. But it really is because they don't like the idea of having to engage in competition with a country right on their doorstep that is a player. And you spoke a bit about this earlier, but in terms of the confrontation that we're seeing now, was this inevitable, do you think, given the things that were left unanswered by the withdrawal agreement, the fudge that was in it that was necessary to reach a deal? Do you think because of all of that, a blow up like this was always going to happen? I think the contradictions in that protocol reflected the fact that it was an unfinished argument. It was the last thing they were talking about when Boris Johnson gave the, the green light to do the deal, and it was unresolved. It's clearly unresolved in the text. So that fight had been rumbling away behind the closed doors of a, of a joint committee in the bureaucratic process for quite some time. It was always going to come out into the open. And it also reflects the fact that Brexit is very indigestible in terms of the British state apparatus with the resignation of all these permanent secretaries that we've seen of late. And the fact that the European Union is finding it very hard to negotiate with a neighbour that is a player, that's a big economy, a big country, a country with a lot of history behind it, a lot of standing in the world. It's finding it hard to negotiate with a country that has become independent from it. And that's been a big part of why the negotiations aren't working. David Frost, the, the Prime Minister's chief negotiator, I think is right when he says that the EU just can't handle the fact that Britain is now an independent and sovereign country and isn't part of their order. They've wasted a lot of time in the negotiations in trying to wrestle Britain inside their order or to, to sort of shackle Britain to it. And, and that clearly just isn't going to work. Ella? Whether or not no deal, whether or not that is an outcome as a question is, is quite a difficult one to pose because it's been asked many, many times over the last few months and years. But how plausible is it that that will happen, bearing in mind the fact that you know, the whole fiasco over the appointment of Tony Abbott and the idea that the British government has got a, you know, look back into recent memory and the 2019 general election has got a mandate, a pretty strong mandate for a, a strong Brexit. But is it bluffing? Is no deal possible? What do you think on that kind of eternal question at this point? I think at the moment, there's a big element of bluff, although it's rooted in, in something that is a necessity for the government. I don't think the government can cope with the ambiguities in the Northern Ireland protocol, particularly if the trade negotiations then do fail. And I think there is a, a possibility of them failing, even though the government wants to deal for, for some of the reasons that I was talking about before. I think one of the things that's now happened is that it wouldn't just be a no deal in terms of there not being a free trade agreement. It would also be something much more poisonous because Britain would be reinterpreting the Brexit withdrawal treaty in the light of, of those circumstances against the wishes of the EU. And I think that could, in the event there isn't a free trade agreement, that could really, really poison relationships and poison things for some years to come. 
I think there will probably be a deal, but I think it's very, very volatile at the moment. And the fact that the government sometimes don't really seem to be in control, the fact that the um, internal market bill came out through, I think, sort of briefings by senior civil servants who were unhappy to the Financial Times, the fact that it led to the resignation of a permanent secretary, quite a well-respected, a very well-respected government lawyer. I think that shows the sort of febrile, volatile element, which is still very, very strong in British politics. And whilst the government has a strong democratic mandate, the government itself in the person of Boris Johnson is, is, is surprisingly frail. And I think people pick up on that. You're listening to the Spikes podcast. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the show. If that's the case, why not tell other people about it? You could share the episode on social media, or you can give us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. That way, you can help new listeners to find us, and it won't take any more than a few seconds. Help spread the word about the Spiked podcast today by sharing us on social media or giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. Now, back to the show. This week, the government announced a retightening of the coronavirus restrictions in England. From Monday, it will be illegal to gather in groups of more than six. Offenders could be given a fine of £100, while those who organise mass gatherings could face fines of £10,000. The announcement follows a rise in the number of daily COVID cases. On Sunday, the 6th of September, nearly 3,000 people tested positive for COVID in Britain. Similar fears of a second wave have taken hold after rising case numbers in other European countries like France and Spain. However, for now at least, the number of people being hospitalised or dying with COVID in the UK remains incredibly low. Ella, what are your thoughts on um, these latest restrictions? Well, it's incredibly frustrating. And actually, the interesting thing is that I've noticed a bit of a shift. So even in terms of the way in which journalists who previously would have been sort of blind to any consideration of how restrictions on socialising would affect normal people. Laura Koonsberg and even Beth Rigby from Sky News were kind of questioning the Prime Minister saying, well, how is this going to affect your average person's daily life? Which I think is a positive to show that whereas a few months ago, or actually even a few weeks ago, we were still having that kind of battle about you were simply a COVID idiot if you wanted to question anything around the the lockdown or any restrictions to prevent the virus. And now I think there's a little bit more of a space for people to say, you know, really? Six? We're only now allowed to have six people, which is a good thing. But it made even more frustrating by the fact that if you watched the press conference and watched the kind of, at this point, really quite tiresome animations that they create, it was quite clear that this rise in numbers is not like we've seen before. So it's not a kind of national spike. Chris Whitty went on about the fact that the rate of infection among older people and children is flatlining and that the rates are highest and are rising fastest among those who are aged 20 to 29, which is no surprise because the government's told us to go out and go to Nando's every night with all of our friends. But the, the frustrating thing is, why can't the government have the balls basically and the gumption to say, okay, as long as we maintain this 
protection and shielding around those who are really vulnerable, who we know are older people and people who are already sick, you know, and people are sensible. It's not a bad thing necessarily if those who are aged 20 to 29 and are quite unlikely to die from this keep going out and keep being sensible, but we don't need to lock everyone back down. It's also the case that when they showed the animation of the map of England, you know, you had this awkward fact that throughout it, Leicester is sort of a pinpoint in the map, uh, which is throughout their little animation, high levels of the rate of infection. And there's questions around that. But, you know, the virus has really barely touched the Southwest. There's areas where they haven't had any spikes in infection. And so limiting people to six people, you know, and socializing makes no sense there. It really does feel like something we felt before, which is the government feeling like it needs to do something because there's been a bit of a rise in infection in certain areas rather than taking a kind of measured and sensible approach. And actually the point is that that's really dangerous. And I think this is something that we need to talk about more, which is that if you have a government which is implementing quite serious restrictions. So yes, it's annoying that you can't meet up with six people, but I'm more worried about these covered secure marshals and what role they'll play in social life. I'm very worried about the idea of fining people. £100 is not an insignificant amount, despite what some Radio 4 presenters might think. (laughs) Are they going to be mass arresting young people? Because I can tell you now it's young people that are going to be breaking these restrictions. All of that is significant and shows a government that doesn't have the authority to make difficult but sensible decisions and stand by its own decisions. It's just kind of flailing. And we could see not a, a dangerous rise in coronavirus and people dying, but I think actually damage to our civil liberties, to crucial aspects of our everyday life that are much harder to repair. Tom? Well, I think it's it's good that people are waking up to this because this situation is just intolerable. It's been, what, six months now since we went into lockdown and the government is talking about fining and potentially even arresting people for having one too many relatives over to their house. This is a remarkable state of affairs. And as Ella was saying, as you were saying in your intro, the justification for this is not clear whatsoever. There has Mm. been this rise in cases, but it hasn't materialised into a significant rise in hospitalisations and deaths yet, thankfully. There's clear reasons for us to be a bit more hopeful at this point as far as we are doing much more testing we're doing testing in the community we're picking up cases milder cases amongst young people which at the height of the epidemic we wouldn't have been catching through only testing hospitals again we're testing loads in very hard hit areas all the rest of it and yet it seems like these very authoritarian measures are just the way in which the outbreak is going to be managed indefinitely i mean it's always worth reminding people as well this was supposed to be a three-week lockdown to stop the nhs from being overwhelmed and now hospitalizations are almost irrelevant and we're only talking about cases in the community so it's important that we remember that and we remain vigilant about this but it's not only the restrictions authoritarian and intolerable it's also the way in which they've been brought in which is the way in which all of these restrictions have been brought in throughout this process which is with little to no parliamentary scrutiny whatsoever it's a point that was worth making that lockdown has never had explicit and full parliamentary approval this has been done largely by the swipe of matt hancock's pen you've had regulations brought in changed often even before the first set have been properly debated there's been around 350 of these laws brought in so far And meanwhile, let's not forget, whilst you have all of these authoritarian measures, you have a parliament seemingly completely incapable of actually debating them properly. The right to protest has been suspended. You know, you had Piers Corbyn a week ago being fined £10,000 for his little anti-lockdown protest in Trafalgar Square. So this is something that we need to be very, very serious about. You know, no one is saying that this is all part of some pre-planned authoritarian takeover on the part of this government. 
that being said, it's always quite funny that the Corbynistas who called Boris Johnson a fascist are remarkably chilled out about this new state of affairs. But nevertheless, it feels like this is becoming the means through which we handle this epidemic indefinitely. Forever lockdown is just going to be the, you know, seemingly the future for now. But also you do have to be very careful about the way in which measures like this become justified responses to crises, even in the absence of good justifications for them. And that's something that could definitely live on with us beyond this crisis and potentially into other public health or other crises in the future as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think it is really worth just underscoring the fact that a lot of these cases are not what people think of being a case. You know, there was a time back in April where a case was someone who turned up at hospital because those were the only people there was testing available for. You know, at the peak in April, there were only about 6,000 official cases. It's estimated that there were probably around 100,000 of the kind of cases that we are seeing today back then. But, you know, even since mid-June, testing has risen by around 80%. Now, obviously, testing is not the only factor behind the increase in cases. There has been an increase in the proportion of those tested who have tested positive. But that proportion has gone up a lot more slowly than the raw numbers. You know, it, it really isn't the surge or the, the scary rise that is being portrayed in, in much of the media. And, you know, hospital symptoms are not rising at the same speed. A lot of people really just have, you know, quite mild illnesses at this stage. And, you know, is that really something that we should worry about? Is that really something that warrants new, more draconian restrictions? I think not. I think, you know, actually things have (laughs) been pretty good since we've eased the lockdown. The virus hasn't got out of control. The virus hasn't started killing people in a kind of malicious second wave that we've all been fearing. So really, you know, you'd hope that people would be looking at these figures and think the best thing to do is maybe wait a bit, maybe not be so hasty in in reacting. But instead, we just have, you know, the same kind of knee-jerk response as we've come to expect from the government. Ella? On testing, all of this is frustrating and the government just hasn't got its act together at any point. At At no point in this pandemic have I kind of cheered any of their measures or decisions. But the testing question is really annoying because they've now announced this, what's it called? Operation Moonshot. Mm. Ridiculous name for a ridiculous project, you know, a hundred billion pounds thrown at mass testing, despite the fact that yesterday Matt Hancock was quoted saying, you know, it's ridiculous. People are getting tests just because they're going on holiday. People are getting tests when they have no symptoms. They don't need to get tests. It's like, make up your mind. (laughs) Is it the case that we need mass testing and everyone should be doing it every week? My little brother works in a testing center in Ponder's End and is constantly telling me about the, you know, poor state of the level of organization there. You know, Serco is part of this new Operation Moonshot, despite the fact that they've proven themselves sort of less than useless in terms of dealing with equipment and warehouses and setting up test centers. So there's no proof uh, of the actions of the last few months that this Operation Moonshot is going to be successful. But also on the more important note, we now know and have armed with the information that the virus affects certain sections of society. And yet I have not heard any significant discussion or movement from the government on the issue of care homes, of protecting mm. the elderly, you know, have a massive national drive to hire more care nurses so that when we move into the winter months, when all the other stuff that knocks off old people in November and December is going to start kicking in, you've just got this kind of scattergun throwing money approach, which isn't going to work. So it's really quite a depressing picture. 
the fact they're going to spend essentially three quarters of the entire NHS budget on this Operation Moonshot on testing just is the best indication of how the government has just been caught up in complete COVID mania, completely unable to see any of the other things that are simply going on in society, the problems that are being caused by the government thanks to the lockdown. I mean, mm. the focus is completely myopic. And and worst of all, you know, the, the outcome of this mass testing, you know, testing millions of people a day is going to be hundreds of thousands of false positives. Testing is supposed to get us back to normal, but in fact, what it's doing and, and what it will do if we ramp it up even further is create more disruption and more excuses for lockdown and isolation. And I think the other thing that we've really got to be very vigilant about is the way in which the government has, with some success, framed this whole issue of dealing with the pandemic as a question of individual behaviour. You've seen that in relation to lockdown time and again, where again, if these very strict measures fail to do what they're supposed to do, it can just be blamed on young people for going out too much, as we've seen this week. You've even seen the government try and do this in other areas. You know, like Ella was saying, Matt Hancock effectively blaming the bottleneck in testing on people applying for a test when they shouldn't be. So you see time and again, it's individual behaviour, which is the problem, which on the one hand lets them off the hook because, as you say, they've created themselves through government action a lot of horrendous scandals throughout this crisis. But at the same time, I think it also shows how important it is that we remake that case for personal freedom to make clear that it's not individuals that are the problem here. It's not individual freedom, which is the thing that is standing between us and getting back to having a normal society and getting past this pandemic. Because time and again, it's been presented as just feckless idiots, which have been the problem, despite the fact that there's been so many clear issues of feckless politicians who have led to this crisis being far worse than it had to be. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. The inquiry into the Manchester Arena bombing began this week, more than three years after 22 people were murdered by the Islamist Salman Abedi. A number of details have emerged from the witness testimony of the many missed opportunities to challenge Abedi and potentially prevent the attack. One witness thought that Abedi's large rucksack was suspicious and said he saw him praying before the attack. But when Abedi's prayers were reported in the press, it caused a stir on social media. The Muslim Council of Britain said it was unacceptable to draw attention to this detail. The BBC even changed the headline of one of its articles to remove any reference to praying. Tom, what's going on here? Well, I think this is really quite remarkable. So as you say, the um, inquiry into the Manchester Arena bombing started this week. And the response that you saw really from the first day of reporting from the Muslim Council of Britain and others, I think has been pretty shameless. So as you say, there was this BBC headline, it was on the front page of the BBC News website, Arena Bomber, quote, seen praying an hour before the blast. This is a reference to, as you say, the testimony of an eyewitness who claims to have seen this. And the Muslim Council of Britain and their media monitoring organisation issued complaints. They said it was unverified, it was misleading, frankly irrelevant. 
saying that it was linking prayer with terrorism when it's not relevant whatsoever. And whilst I got in contact with the BBC, they said that they received the complaint, but then made the decision on the basis of their own judgment, because they always review their stories. People can make up their minds about that in terms of whether that's true or not. But at the same time, this is part of a pattern. The Muslim Council of Britain in particular have been lodging many of these kinds of complaints over the years. And often it revolves around this, any purported link really between terrorism and faith, effectively between Islamism and Islam. It seems to be the thing that they're most concerned about. 2018, they made complaints to The Guardian and the BBC because they both published pictures of Khalid Massoud, the Westminster Bridge attacker in Mecca. um, And those pictures were coincidentally taken down shortly afterwards. And I think it's just really important to say that this is not really a question about factual accuracy. This is what they're effectively asking journalists to do is to omit certain details so that dim-witted readers don't come to the wrong conclusion (laughs) as far as they concern it. This is not really about saying you got this wrong, this needs to be corrected, this isn't true. It's about saying this sends the wrong kind of message. And I think that's really obnoxious and really dangerous because I think if you're policing reporting of this issue it's by connection it's policing discussion of this issue about what the potential motivations are for this kind of terrorism and I think it's particularly obnoxious to do it in the names of protecting Muslims from being unfairly smeared partly given the fact that people are smart enough to know the difference in Islamism and Islam but also Islamist extremism is as much a threat to British Muslims as it is to non-Muslim British people. They they do not discriminate against us in that <laughs> respect. So I think it was just quite unpleasant. It's part of a pattern. It's something that we've seen time and again. In many ways, it's not necessarily about singling out the MCB because there is a broader kind of self-imposed nervousness around reporting on and having this discussion. But I think it's just so important that journalists are allowed to print what they like without ending up being kind of retrospectively re-edited by lobby groups, which I don't think we'd find acceptable in any other situation. But by connection, this is about all of us being able to work out where this extremism comes from so that you can do right by the victims and make sure these things don't happen again or happen a lot less than they have previously. So it's one example, I think, of a broader trend, which is is really quite damaging. Maybe my favourite example of, you know, the MCB complaining to a news outlet was when they singled out this BBC video It had an interview with an Iranian woman who took part in the anti-hijab protests and they complained that it gave an overly one-sided view of the hijab and that there should have been a counterbalance. Now, you know, this woman was um, arrested, uh, interrogated, effectively forced to flee the country and the MCB is saying, well, you know, maybe you should have given a counterexample. And as as you say, you know, it isn't about accuracy. It's about can we basically criticise Islam is, is kind of the question that's being that's being raised by all of this. Ella? Well, I think that's the crucial point. It's that the lines between being Islamophobic, you know, believing that all Muslims are terrorists and terrible people, the distinction between that and not being Islamophobic, but having some serious criticisms of that particular religion. Like in the case of the woman in Iran, the difference between readers in Britain thinking about that is that no one is going to put you in jail if you don't wear a head covering in Britain, but that's not the case in Iran. And so that's why her particular protest was so powerful. I mean, the point that Tom makes is the key one, which doesn't get enough of an airing, which is that this isn't about factual accuracy or it isn't about sort of being objective. It's this underlying assumption that if a public reads a paper that makes a link between Abedi and his religion, that automatically we are going to be, it's like it acts like a dog whistle. We're going to go out on the streets and start shouting Islamophobic hatred at the next Muslim that walks past us. There's just no evidence of that. There has been no evidence of that. And in actual fact, after 
the kind of terrorist attacks that Abadi and people like him have carried out, there has always been quite a strong response from people to condemn it and to make sure that this doesn't spiral out into any kind of uglier representation of Islamophobia. You have a small, very small section of British society, which has a particular obsession with Islamophobic content. You know, they get their rocks off to talking about Muslims as being tied up in paedophile rings and that they're all terrorists and some very backward people. But the vast majority of British society accepts that discrimination on the basis of someone's religion isn't something that we're into. We believe in religious freedom. The thing that will attack that and that will damage that quite liberal sentiment that we have in the public is this idea that you're going to be censored or called a bigot if you raise legitimate questions about a faith. And of course, it's very relevant that he was a Muslim in the same way that it's not all Christians think that women's freedom is a terrible thing, but it's quite significant to know that most of the vicious anti-choice, anti-abortion campaigns in this country are run by you know people who are, have a Christian faith. That's an important thing for you to know, to understand the reasoning behind their actions. And in the case of homegrown terrorism, we need all the information we can get because it's not something that we have a grip on at the moment. It's not. It's something that's still very much a problem. And so any attempt to hide information about the particulars of that individual and why they did that and their motivations is actually, as Tom mentions in Spiked, putting people in danger. Because the outcome of this is if you're not able to talk about terrorism, the ins and outs of it and why it happens, then you're not doing a good job of preventing it from happening in the future. Tom, do you want to make a final point? Well, I think this broader discussion, not necessarily just talking about this case, but this discussion about the press and Islamophobia and terrorism also just points to the kind of depravity of political correctness. Mm. The fact that you see in the wake of a terrorist attack, people going around social media, effectively blaming it on comment pieces by certain right-wing columnists, blaming it on front pages on certain tabloid newspapers. It's really depraved. On the one hand, you're absolving the murderers in this case of any personal responsibility. You're piling on a remarkable level of moral condemnation onto people who are often just airing their criticisms of a religion, of a faith, of a set of ideas, and trying to claim that they're kind of accessories to murder because of doing that. But also you get into a really bizarre position where in the wake of an atrocity or an inquiry, say, when they're discussing said atrocity, the thing people get outraged about is what is the language being used or the particular examples being reported or highlighted rather than the facts of the matter, which was, you know, three years ago, a young man killed 22 people, including children, teenagers and their parents in cold blood. And it might be a good idea to try and work out what all that was about. I think, again, it speaks to the depravity of a lot of this discussion around political correctness and language and rhetoric and its allegedly toxic influence in general, that in the face of those kinds of issues, we find ourselves talking about what the BBC decided to pick for their headline on a homepage. I think it's pretty scandalous, to be honest. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.